Today's reading is Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in, the, in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And thank you for the opportunity that I have to preach today. Help the congregation to hear the words that they need to hear. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be ever accepted, acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Merry Christmas, everybody. As Pastor David mentioned last week, what's great about being a Christian is that we have 12 days of Christmas. That is until January 5th. Uh, that's 12 days of feasting. And uh, I certainly would not mind 12 days of feasting. Uh, perhaps some of you agree. And then there's more. The day after January 5th, January 6th, that's the epiphany which primarily celebrates the Magi's visit and the revelation of the incarnate Christ. And if you're particularly bold and ecumenical, you can keep your tree up until the 19th to account for Eastern Orthodox Christmas tide. But you see, our society wants us to forget that the feasting begins on December 25th. In the days leading up to Christmas, we scramble trying to complete portfolios, decks, analyses, final papers, and examinations. 
And when all is said and done, we rush to the supermarket to buy half and half because we forgot that that recipe doesn't actually call for heavy whipping cream. We overnight deliver presents because we forgot to buy a toy for our child uh, or a little trinket for our mother-in-law. I myself spent the days leading up to Christmas opening my Lego and tea advent calendars, furiously rewatching every Christmas episode of The Office for probably the 10th time and completing Christmassy tasks in Animal Crossing New Horizons. And on the 26th, the heinous epilepsy-inducing lights and blow-up front-lawn Santa fixtures finally come down, and the rest of the country decides that it is time to move on to New Year's celebrations. But I think as the church, when we do this, we miss the beauty of Advent and Christmastide. We didn't wait four weeks for a party to be overshadowed by an even bigger one later, one week later. Now, there's, of course, nothing wrong with celebrating the new year. But as Christians, we waited for our coming king, God, with us. So with Christmas Day now two days behind us, are we waiting for New Year's Eve, or are we waiting for the incarnate Christ to complete his salvific work on earth? Are we waiting for New Year's Eve? Or are we waiting for the incarnate Christ to complete his salvific work on earth? I chose Luke's story of Jesus returning to Nazareth because of the dramatic irony. We as a resurrection people know that Jesus is the Messiah. But the people of his hometown had no idea who he was. They had no idea that he was, is, and will be. They had no idea that he was the Messiah. He was the one for whom they waited. They simply went on with their lives, continuing to wait for the state savior who stood in front of their very eyes. I wonder what it was like for Mary and Joseph to raise the boy Jesus, knowing that he was the son of God. I wonder what it was like for them to wait 30 years for Jesus to grow up and officially launch his ministry. And although the people of Nazareth may not have known that he was the Messiah, they were indeed waiting for him to return home because they had heard of all the amazing works that he had performed. Everybody loves a hometown hero. We have a sense of pride in knowing an individual who does something big in the world. I actually have a lot of pride in a relatively unknown football player named Ramses Barden, who began his football career at my high school in La Cañada, California. In 2011, he won a Super Bowl with the New York Giants, uh, but his most, most co notable contribution statistics-wise was one game. I think it was week one of, two, of the 2012 season when he caught nine passes for 138 yards and no touchdowns. That's it. Nobody really paid much attention to him, but my high school and I always rooted for him. And whenever he came back to campus, we would ask him to speak at pep rallies and we would go listen to him and cheer loudly because he's our hometown hero. Like Ramses, Jesus of Nazareth had modest roots. At the same time, Jesus's home, uh, at that time, Jesus's hometown of Nazareth probably had uh, 400 people, which just so happens to be the number of high schoolers at my high school. 
And so just like how every student in my high school knew Ramsey Spartan, every member of the Nazareth community knew Jesus. But as we just read in today's scripture passage, Jesus did not return home to ruckus applause. Perhaps this episode that kicks off Jesus's Galilean ministry foreshadows Luke 9, 58, when Jesus says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. But more immediately, Luke places this event at the beginning of his gospel to show his readers what kind of Messiah Jesus truly is. Jesus has just repelled the devil in the wilderness and the devil leaves for an opportune time. And in fact, the devil does not return in Luke's gospel until he enters Judas in Luke 22, three. Jesus ministry in the power of the spirit. And we are about to witness for the first time who the spirit-filled Messiah truly is. For whom have we waited? I have three points for you today. The first point is this. Jesus Christ is a Messiah who demands everybody's attention. Jesus Christ is a Messiah who demands everybody's attention. After Jesus had finished reading the scroll, he rolled it back up and sat down, indicating that he was about to teach. Luke tells us in verse 20, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. The people of Nazareth weren't looking at memes on their phones. They weren't simultaneously watching the Giants game while treating the worship service as background noise. They weren't shopping online or preparing lunch. No. Every single eye was fixed like a laser on him because Jesus Christ demanded their attention. Jesus declared that the Isaiah text that he read, which these people had heard so many times, had been fulfilled in their hearing that very day. That's a very bold claim. The reading in synagogue on that day was Isaiah 61, 1 to 2. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty whose who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jewish communities would have understood this passage as referring to the year of the Jubilee, the 50th year celebrating Israel's release from Babylonian captivity in 539 BCE. During the Jubilee year, all debts are forgiven with the purpose of restoring human dignity to those enslaved by their debts. And so for the ancient Jews, this Isaiah passage recalled a moment in history that they celebrated through the forgiveness of debts. But what did Jesus do? Well, apparently the Jubilee is not merely an artifact of history. Jesus claimed that he was going to do something so much more than that. Just as the servant of Isaiah was anointed to bring good news of delivery from Babylonian captivity, 
so too is Jesus anointed to bring good news of delivery from sin and death. After 400 years of silence, a carpenter's son claims that he is the Messiah. And out of all of the possible reactions the people could have had, Luke tells us in verse 22 that the people marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Even the people who would eventually become filled with wrath against Jesus had no choice but to marvel at his words. Unfortunately for the people of Nazareth, this was the extent of their praise. All they could do was marvel. They chose not to give thanks or praise him more explicitly. And this is probably because they did not know what his deal was. Point number two, Jesus Christ is a Messiah whose message some people cannot comprehend. Jesus Christ is a Messiah whose message some people cannot comprehend. While the people of Nazareth spoke well of Jesus, as I said, that's all they could do. Immediately after marveling at Jesus's words, the people asked, wait, isn't that Joseph's son? Within this rhetorical question, there appear to be two possible reasons for which the people asked this. First, they doubted his credentials. Jesus is just the carpenter's son. What does he know about theology? And second, they were truly, truly confused. If I were to stand in front of you today and say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and then tell you that I fulfill this prophecy, I would expect all of you to stand up, walk out yelling blasphemer, blasphemer, uh, because it this doesn't happen. That's not what the people did. Jesus's words, gracious as they were, deeply confounded the people of Nazareth. They completely missed that Jesus was saying to them, God has been silent for 400 years. You continue to live under the reign of godless kingdoms. But today I declare to you that I am God. And I have returned to set the captive free, to give sight to the blind and liberate the oppressed. The people missed this declaration, despite being attentive to his every word, because even though they thought they knew who Jesus was, they didn't really know him. They did not understand how a carpenter from a backwater village could be their supposed political ruler to deliver the Jews from the Romans. And even more, they did not understand why the Messiah would come to deliver the Gentiles as well. As Jesus says in uh, Luke 4, 25 to 27, Elijah could have gone to any starving widow in Israel, but God sent him to Zarephath in Sidon, that is, into enemy territory. Elisha could have gone to any suffering leper in Israel, but he cleansed Naaman, the Syrian, that is, in enemy 
of Israel. I hear the people of Nazareth asking in perhaps a less genuine manner than Nicodemus asks in John's gospel, how can this be? Perhaps the people of Nazareth do not want to know Jesus. Maybe they want to continue thinking of Jesus as a benign little boy, somebody who does not challenge their own biases and sensibilities. This brings us to our third and final point. Jesus Christ is a Messiah who does not conform to our own images of a savior. Jesus Christ is a Messiah who does not conform to our own images of a savior. Anticipating Nazareth's demand for the miracles he had performed at Capernaum, Jesus prophetically speaks in verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus effectively accuses the people of Nazareth of demanding a Messiah in their own image. They want a performing circus monkey who can dance around and do what is commanded. They don't want to share with the likes of Gentiles from Zarephath. Or Syria, or Rome, or Texas, or California, or New York. They want miracles for themselves. They don't want all of Jesus. But you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes with a choice. You either embrace Jesus or you reject him entirely. You can't have it both ways. The people of Nazareth were enraged and they tried to cast Jesus off of a cliff. But Jesus walked right past them and left. Now this whole episode in Luke's gospel reminds me of the Exodus narrative. In uh, Exodus 19.8, the people swear all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In some sense, both the Israelites of the Exodus and the people of Nazareth marvel at God. There's something about him that makes you marvel at him. But the human heart is fickle. Just a few chapters later, Moses descends from Mount Sinai, face glowing, tablets in hand, to find the Israelites prostrating themselves before a dinky golden calf. They had no idea where this Moses guy went, even though he said he would return. And so they took matters into their own hands. They fashioned a God in their own image. Well, the people of Nazareth realized that they had no clue who their Jesus was. And they too fashioned God in their own image. Imagine going our entire lives faithfully attending synagogue, listening to readings and teachings and waiting for the Messiah. And the Messiah shows up right in front of us. And even though we are drawn to his presence, we do not understand who he is. I feel that I have been somewhat guilty of this during this past Advent. During this year, it goes without saying that many of us have experienced great 
great loss. We have lost family members to COVID-19 and other illnesses. We have lost our own health. We've lost jobs and paychecks, random trips to the grocery stores, play dates, holiday parties, in-class school, you name it. If anything, this year is teaching us what it means to suffer losses and how to appreciate what God has given us as good gifts from above. This year is also teaching us to wait patiently upon the Lord. When we first heard news that a mysterious SARS-like illness had broken out in Wuhan, we waited anxiously to see if it would make its way to our shores. And when we first heard news that it had reached the United States, we waited anxiously to see if it would make it from Washington state to the tri-state area. And when outbreaks appeared all over the country, we stayed shuttered inside and we waited anxiously for the day when we could return outside. And now we wait anxiously for the public and private sectors to work harmoniously in order to vaccinate a country of 330 million and a world of 8 billion. And even after that, we will wait anxiously for our country and our world to reach herd immunity. It's endless waiting, it seems. During this Advent season, we waited. And people of the Bible also waited. Jacob waited seven years for Rachel and seven more years to be free of his contract with Laban. The Israelites waited for 40 years in the wilderness for the promised land of Canaan. And the world waited 400 years for the Messiah. So now that Christ has been born, why do we continue to wait? Why do we continue to wait on things that are good things, but ultimately cannot save us? God is so much greater than some puny, insignificant idea that we could ever fathom. Jesus had been trying to tell the people of Nazareth that their narrow understanding of him was so small in comparison to the plans that he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit had in store. He said to them, you want me to do a couple miracles for 400 people? That's all you want? You have no idea who I am. I am the one, and I am from the one who sent Elijah into enemy territory to feed a starving widow and her son during a famine in the land. I am the one, and I am from the one who sent Elijah to heal Naaman, the Syrian. And you want to limit my plans to this dinky backwater village? The mob hated that he said these things to them, and they tried to kill him. That day in Nazareth was not the day that the people would catch Jesus. But one day, God's major plan would come to pass. In fact, God's plan involved an angry mob catching Jesus and killing him by an even more humiliating death 
than by being thrown off of a cliff. I wonder how many people in Nazareth eventually figured out who Jesus was. I wonder if they realized that he truly was the one whom the Father sent to make things right in the world. The text is silent on that issue. But I can tell you today, regardless of your struggle, anxiety, guilt, anger, sadness, impatience, restlessness, Jesus has made things right on the cross. And you can be a part of Jesus's mission. And maybe Jesus has your attention right now, but you don't know what he is about. Well, as we learned today, Jesus is the Messiah of the world. Not just for Nazareth. Not just for Jews. The whole world for eternity. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that all of our sins would be forgiven. Don't settle for some cheap knockoff Messiah. Choose this one, Jesus Christ. He may not have been the hometown hero that Nazareth had hoped he would be. Far from it. He was a Messiah who demanded their attention, but whom they could not understand and who defied their expectations. But Jesus was a greater hero than they could have ever imagined because Jesus saved the world and he is the hero that we need today. And he is the one for whom we have waited during this Advent season. Now he is the one whom we celebrate as we feast for 10 more days until the epiphany. And praise be to God that Jesus Christ is the God whom we worship. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We have waited for his birth. And even now, as we celebrate and feast, as we eat, drink, and be merry. We wait for him to complete his work, a work to be fulfilled and glorified on the cross at Easter. Today I ask that you help us to understand who you are. You are not a God who conforms to our own ideas. You are God, and you will have mercy on whom you will have mercy. Help us to see what kind of Messiah Jesus Christ truly was, is, and will be. Grant us rest, even as we wait for the pandemic to be brought to its knees, and give us the faith to trust that you are bigger than all of the things that come our way. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to be like your son, Jesus Christ, who taught us when we pray to say, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.